Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. A tropical storm is quickly gaining strength in the Atlantic. Where is it going and what's the National Hurricane Center warning about? A felony gun charge. Prosecutors say President Biden's son Hunter could be indicted this month. His deal with the DOJ fell apart earlier this year. A Fulton County judge is giving Fannie Willis six days to explain how she will try 19 defendants in one trial. A special prosecutor says it can be done in four months. In Trump's other legal cases, a major decision in the E. Jean Carroll case in New York and a key witness will testify in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Senators are back on Capitol Hill as health concerns about minority leader Mitch McConnell linger. What does he have to say about his recent scares? And Secretary of State Antony Blinken makes a surprise visit to Ukraine, but his trip is somewhat overshadowed by a deadly attack. Tropical Storm Lee in the Atlantic is fast approaching major hurricane strength and it could become life-threatening. The storm is about 1,200 miles east of the northern Leeward Islands, which are in the Caribbean Sea, and it's moving toward the west-northwest with sustained winds of 70 miles per hour. The National Hurricane Center warns it's gaining strength fast and is expected to become a hurricane later today and a major hurricane into the weekend. Current projections show it not making landfall but passing just northeast of the British Virgin Islands. But swells brought by the hurricane could cause life-threatening surf and rip current conditions. No coastal watches or warnings are in effect at this time. Lee is the 12th named storm of the Atlantic hurricane season, which runs from June 1st to November 30th. President Biden's son, Hunter, may be charged with a felony gun crime, according to the Justice Department. This is the same crime that caused his prior deal with federal prosecutors to fall apart. In a filing today, special counsel David Weiss says prosecutors plan to ask a grand jury to indict Hunter Biden for the crime soon, possibly as early as the last Friday of this month. Prosecutors have said the younger Biden possessed a firearm in October 2018, despite being addicted to an illegal drug. That's a violation of federal law. Biden's team had previously reached a deal with the DOJ for two tax charges. When the judge asked for clarification if it covers the gun charge, the deal fell apart. Now, Hunter Biden's lawyers are expected to submit their own filing by the end of the day. A conviction could land him in prison for up to 10 years. A Georgia judge today said he was skeptical that prosecutor Fannie Willis could try all 19 defendants together in October. He said the entire case could be at risk since they're still waiting to find out if it will be moved to a federal court. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. Uh, it sounds like the state is still sticking to the position that all these defendants should remain. Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee expressing doubt on Wednesday that Fonnie Willis could try all 19 defendants together in her sprawling RICO case against former President Trump and 18 others. I, I remain very skeptical, uh, but we can, um, I'm, I'm willing to hear what you have to say on it. The prosecution argued that Ken Chesbro and Sidney Powell's request to have separate trials should not be allowed. Judge, we contend that we must prove the entire conspiracy against each and every one charged. 
Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade said all 19 defendants had to be tried together. He said the judge would have to decide whether or not he wanted to hear the same case 19 times. Wade estimated how long the trial would take. Um, firstly, uh, we would contend that a, a trial um, of these 19 uh, co-defendants will take four months. He said that would include in excess of 150 witnesses testifying, not including if the defendants decide to testify. And that the four months also didn't include jury selection. With a speedy trial date coming up in October, Judge McAfee questioned whether or not all 19 defendants could come together in 47 days. But he also had another concern. One of the first things I kind of want to talk through is, is potentially how removal affects this. Some defendants have asked a district court judge to move their case to federal court based on their status as federal officials during the alleged time period. Judge McAfee said a conviction in the state trial will be put on hold while they wait to hear the federal judge's decision. And if the federal ruling is appealed, that wait could be even longer. Right. So it could potentially even optimistically be a six-month turnaround just for the 11th Circuit to, to come up with a decision. The judge said it might be risky to push forward. He's also concerned about a lot of pretrial motions and questioned how they could handle motions from all 19 defendants in 47 days. In the end, Judge McAfee denied Chesbro and Powell's motions for separate trials and asked the prosecution to submit additional papers explaining how they will try 19 defendants in one trial. The prosecution has until next Tuesday to explain. Tiffany? Now over to former President Trump's other legal cases, a ruling in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, and a response to Trump's request to delay Attorney General Letitia James' civil fraud lawsuit against his business. A federal judge has ruled that Trump is liable in the second E. Jean Carroll defamation case. That means the jury will only need to decide how much money Trump will have to pay her when the case goes to trial in January. The case centers on Trump's 2019 statements denying he sexually assaulted Carroll in the mid-1990s. And in A.G. James' case, a New York judge has denied Trump's request to briefly delay the trial scheduled for October 2nd. Trump argued the trial should be delayed until the judge considers both sides' requests for summary judgments. In this case, the New York Attorney General is accusing Trump and his business of overvaluing the assets of the Trump Organization. And more updates in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. A key witness has entered into a deal with prosecutors to provide testimony. According to a court filing today, the witness, who is not named, is the head of information technology at Trump's Mar-a-Lago, Florida resort. Prosecutors previously said that the witness had information about efforts by Trump's personal aide, Walt Nada, and others to obstruct the federal investigation. Prosecutors said in an August filing that the witness initially denied any knowledge of obstruction. The deal to testify comes after special counsel Jack Smith's office sent the witness a letter threatening him with prosecution for lying to a grand jury. Senators returned to Capitol Hill and Republicans are facing questions about whether they want to replace their leader. This after Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had a second episode of freezing mid-sentence during a press conference. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more from Capitol Hill. Melina, tell us about McConnell. How is he doing? 
Good evening. So, yeah, when we saw Senator McConnell today, he seemed fine, nothing out of the ordinary, pretty normal, nothing abnormal in his demeanor or in his speech. It was just like regular, his low, mumbled voice that he always uses, no glitches there, nothing uh, freezing that we've seen twice in the past five weeks. So everything was normal. The Capitol physician here has cleared him fully to return back to his duties and ruled, ruled out anything neurological or serious. The Capitol physician will read you exactly what he said in this regard. He said there's no evidence that you have a seizure disorder or that you've experienced a stroke, TIA, or movement disorder such as Parkinson's disease. But one huge question still remains, and that is exactly what happened here in these two instances, at least that we're aware of. And that's a question that McConnell doesn't seem to know the answer to, or at least he doesn't want to tell us if he does know the answer. Here's what McConnell had to say to reporters today, as well as how senators in his own caucus are reacting. Do you know what it is? <laughs> I think Dr. Monahan covered the subject fully. You had a chance to read it. I don't have anything to add. I'm going to finish my term as leader, and I'm going to finish my Senate term. There's medicines you take for seizures. As far as I know, he's not on those. I'm concerned about Mitch. He's my friend. He's my colleague. Uh, he's my leader, and I will continue to support him. He is fit to continue as uh, as majority leader so yeah listen I, I voted against him as leader it's not my choice for leader and hasn't been and that hasn't changed and as we noted earlier what's important to note here is this is the second such time that mcconnell has frozen that recent freeze that we saw back when he was in, in his district just a week ago that was the second time we saw such an incident where he would freeze in the middle of a press conference for up to half a minute not moving not blinking nothing that's the second time that's happened in the past five weeks at least that we're aware of so we, we know this has happened in front of the camera it's unclear if this has happened behind closed doors what stands out to some people is the fact that how his staff was reacting they seem very calm with this situation like they had been through it before so this is also raising some questions but as you saw from what McConnell said he plans to finish out his term which ends in 2027 and he plans to continue serving as minority leader until the end of his term there which ends at the end of the election cycle in 2024 and also as you heard from the senators that we heard from none of them have called on him to step down we just haven't heard that from the Senate GOP caucus here. Melina, thank you for that update. And next, more restrictions on oil drilling. The Biden administration is looking to cancel oil and gas leases in a federal wildlife refuge. Environmental groups cheered on the decision, while Republican Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan criticized it. The seven leases were granted by the Trump administration to an Alaska state agency just one day before President Biden took office. Biden's government has pledged to preserve 13 million acres of land in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. That includes banning new leasing on more than 40 percent of it. After four months into Ukraine's counteroffensive, Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a surprise visit to the country. But while he was there, Russia launched a devastating attack, killing at least 17 people. NTD's Jason Perry has the story and a warning. The following report includes content some viewers may find disturbing. In what appeared to just be another day at the market in eastern Ukraine, a Russian airstrike killed at least 17 people, including one child in the city of Kostyanantinivka, 
A witness who was working at the time of the attack shared her experience. Another woman was carried inside by soldiers. She had an open fracture and the bone was sticking out of her leg. She was very pale. She remained conscious but in shock while she was given first aid. Firefighters were seen putting out fires during the aftermath. Wednesday's deadly attack happened during a surprise visit to Ukraine by Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Never go to someone's home without uh, bringing a housewarming gift. We come bearing some uh, further assistance for Ukraine. The White House later confirmed it will provide what is now the 46th additional weapons package for Ukraine since the war began. This latest one is valued at $175 million. During Blinken's two-day trip, he met with Ukraine's foreign minister. We want to make sure that Ukraine has what it needs not only to succeed in the counteroffensive, but has what it needs for the long term to make sure that it has a strong deterrent, strong defense capacity, so that in the future, aggressions like this don't happen again. Blinken also met with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, who said this. This is a difficult challenge and difficult, rather tough period for our society. And always uh, the leaders of the United States, when they come, that's great message of support. Just hours before Blinken arrived in Ukraine's capital of Kyiv, Russia launched missiles at the city. But Ukraine's military said its air defense systems shot them all down. When the Kremlin was asked about Blinken's trip, it said the U.S. plans to keep funding Ukraine's war effort until the last Ukrainian. But Russia may soon need to answer more serious questions. The president of Romania says his country's defense ministry is currently investigating drone debris that landed on Romanian soil. And he said if that drone turns out to be from Russia, it would be a serious violation of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Romania and the NATO allies. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, censoring COVID vaccine information. New emails show Facebook doubted the White House's reasons for censoring some accounts, but still followed through. And China bans iPhones for regime officials. Smartphones are a cybersecurity risk. Find out how you can protect yourself from phone spies after the break. Welcome back. Censoring social media posts about COVID vaccines. The White House pushed Facebook to censor multiple accounts, and the social media giant did. Turns out Facebook never fully believed the government's justification for censorship. Republican Congressman Jim Jordan on Tuesday released the fifth part of what he calls the Facebook files, which are about censoring social media posts about COVID vaccines. In 2021, the White House approached Facebook, pushing the social media giant to censor 12 individuals, among them Robert F. Kennedy Jr. The White House based its request on a report by the British Center for Countering Digital Hate, or CCDH. The 2021 report was called The Disinformation Dozen, Why Platforms Must Act on 12 Leading Online Anti-Vaxxers. In the report, CCDH argued, the disinformation dozen are responsible for up to 65% of anti-vaccine content. The White House repeatedly cited this number when advocating for censorship. 
there's about 12 people who are producing 65% of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms. All of them remain active on Facebook. The congressman this week released email communication showing Facebook staff didn't actually believe that number. One employee seemingly wrote, it seems like the WH thinks if we just remove these 12 accounts, this would cause 65% of anti-vax misinformation to go away. If this were true, I would also want us to do this, but it unfortunately isn't that simple. Jordan says Facebook nevertheless followed the government's request and censored the accounts, labeling their posts as misinformation and more. Another email shows Facebook staff writing, vaccine hesitancy is often or mostly not misinfo. In June of this year, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg talked about the COVID censorship in an episode of the Lex Friedman podcast. Watch. Fortunately, I think a lot of the kind of establishment on that, um, you know, kind of waffled on a bunch of facts and, you know, asked for a bunch of things to be censored that in retrospect ended up being, you know, more debatable or, or true. Jordan says he's now asked the White House and Facebook for documents regarding communication and subpoenaed the CCDH. NTD reached out to the White House and Facebook for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. Ban the president from issuing mask mandates. How likely is this to succeed and what are voters looking for on this front? To find out, we spoke with the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute and the author of Liberty or Lockdown. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure. So President Biden is back to wearing a mask after the first lady tested positive. People like Fauci are calling for more people to be wearing masks. But J.D. Vance, Senator J.D. Vance, just came out with new legislation that would actually ban the federal government from mandating these. So why do you think it's being introduced now instead of right after the pandemic? Well, it's about time. I mean, the Republicans have been a little bit slow to jump on this issue, partially because all these so-called MPIs and non-pharmaceutical interventions began under a Republican White House. So they have their hands a little bit dirty in this whole thing, too. Now, Vance is a, a, a relatively new senator and is thinking outside the box and, uh, and, and saw and sees that the CDC mandated these things on, on uh, for transportation of flights and uh, buses um, and trains, and we had to do with it, deal with this for what the better part of a year, and then that was challenged in court and eventually reversed. Now the CDC continues to challenge that reversal. It's probably going to end up in the in the Supreme Court, but the point is that CDC continues to believe that it has the power to mandate that you wear a mask, um, and they're doing this based on their interpretation of a 1946 law called the Public Health Services Act, and it's a clause on sanitation. So it's implausible uh, justification. Basically, you've got rule by bureaucracy, and J.D. Vance just wants to reverse that and just make it perfectly clear, no, you can't do this. And how do you think J.D. Vance's legislation will be received? Well, it's, gonna, <laughs> it's going to be interesting because I'm pretty sure that most Republicans will vote for it. But he's going to get on record, the Democrats, as saying, no, we think the CDC can and should impose more mask mandates, which, you know, I don't think that's politically smart for them because people really hated those, those masks when the Fifth Circuit in Florida uh, said CDC can't do this. There were cheers on airplanes all over the country and on trains. People were just having parties burning their masks. So 
So uh, yeah, no, I think I think it's going to be really revealing of the of the Democrats if they actually shoot down this legislation, showing that they believe the government should have essentially tyrannical powers that they've never had. So this is this is preposterous, and it'll it'll just be revealing of what we're dealing with with the Democrats. We'll see. And we are heading into the 2024 election season. How much of a priority do you think these anti-mandates or anti-lockdowns are to voters? Uh, well, I, you know, this is a really important question. Um, I, I think they're, they're much more important than people recognize. And they become really important when you have leadership out there uh, like Rand Paul or Ron DeSantis or other people drawing attention to these sort of things. And that's when, that's when people uh, get triggered. They're like, yeah, that was a terrible time in my life. I had to cancel my daughter's wedding. I couldn't go to my mother's funeral. I was afraid to cross state lines. I was called non-essential. I missed my cancer screening. People are have all sorts of trauma from all these mandates over the last several years. But because the political class is generally not talking about it, people get the message that they're not supposed to think about it. So it's going to take really serious leaders at the top, uh, at you know, speaking truth uh, to power in order to get people fired up about it. As it is right now, I'm my best guess is we have about 25% of the American public that's it's really intent on not complying. They're very sophisticated. They understand the science. They understand what went wrong in the pandemic period, and they're really dedicated to not be repeating it. So 75% are. Either they, they just don't care or, you know, they're on the sidelines on the issue. But that 25 percent could make the difference because, as we know, in our current system, uh, a passionate, well-informed, uh, vocal minority of 25 percent can, can get a lot done in this country. So I'm, I'm actually getting more optimistic about it. And Jeffrey, you mentioned part of that falls on leadership. So how much of a priority do you think it is among candidates? Well, I, I, I can't. Personally, I imagine anything more important. Maybe the Russia-Ukraine wars uh, on that level, but, but you know, you, we're talking about t like the imposition of t of tyranny in the name of control of the microbial kingdom. Okay, that is a level of tyranny, and it happened all over the world that we've never experienced in our lifetimes. If we can't fix that, we're never going to get back our freedom and our rights and the rule of law again, much less contains bureaucracy. So yes, I would put it really high in the list of. Uh, priorities for th th things that the political leadership in this country needs to talk about. The Democrats don't want to talk about it. That leaves it to the Republicans to make a big deal out of this. And even if that means, you know, aggressively countering what the White House did in 2020, which is also something that need to be, uh, uh, and I wish Trump would be blunt about this too, just say, look, I made terrible mistakes. Uh, everybody who made, uh, who did lockdown decisions needs to just admit it, apologize, and say we're never going to do that again. I, I don't see how we get our rights and freedoms back until that happens. Sounds like there's a lot at stake here. Well, Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you iPhones are banned for members of the Chinese regime. Sources told the Wall Street Journal that China ordered regime officials to stop using iPhones at work. How secure are smartphones in general? Are we being spied on through our phones? NDD's Yu Qishi investigates. The Chinese regime is prohibiting officials from using iPhones at work. The Wall Street Journal, citing anonymous sources, says this is a step to enhance cybersecurity 
Smartphones in general are not so secure. Certainly, we are being spied on through our phones. Cybersecurity expert Scott Schober says the government, the big tech companies, and hackers can access our phone's data. Criminals can, through malware and hacking, access our conversations, photos, and keystrokes. By looking at keystrokes, they can deduce what our passwords are. Numerous signs your phone may have malware, unfamiliar apps pop up from nowhere, the battery drains very quickly, the phone frequently becomes way too hot, or the phone lights up randomly. Get some type of malware protection to remove that malware. PC Magazine, every year they rate all the antivirus software, malware protection for both PCs and for your smartphones. With suspicious apps, delete those apps, and you can also do a factory reset. You don't need to throw your phone away because of malware. These actions can sufficiently solve the problem. We've reached out to Apple for comment, but they didn't respond before airtime. Yuki Shi, NTD News. Coming up, the search for escaped murderer Daniela Cavalcante enters its seventh day. Investigators reveal how the killer was able to get out of the Chester County prison. Georgia's racketeering law is being used to prosecute not only former President Trump, but also protesters against a police training center. We get an expert's view of Georgia's RICO Act. And a father is fighting for his three-year-old son, whose mother is trying to raise as non-binary. More in just a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Tropical Storm Lee is ramping up in the Atlantic Ocean near the Caribbean. It's expected to become a major hurricane by this weekend, but it's still unclear if it will hit the U.S. A federal judge ruled that former President Trump is liable in the second E. Jean Carroll defamation case. A New York judge denied Trump's request to delay the trial in New York Attorney General Letitia James' civil lawsuit. And an unnamed witness will testify in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a surprise visit to Ukraine and pledged additional aid for the country. During his visit, a Russian airstrike killed at least 17 people in a city in eastern Ukraine. The search for the escaped killer in Pennsylvania continues into its seventh day. Authorities in Chester County say they are expanding their search area after another sighting last night. Last evening, we had another sighting of Cavalcante by a resident in the area of uh, Chandler Road, Pensbury Township. Teams searched the area for hours, but were unable to locate him. A law enforcement source told CNN how convicted murderer Danilo Cavalcante escaped. Investigators said they believe he got out of the Chester County prison last Thursday by climbing onto the roof and squeezing through razor wire. Another inmate escaped from the prison in a similar manner in May. About 200 law enforcement personnel are searching for Cavalcante in eastern Pennsylvania. They are now hoping to stress him out of hiding. Authorities are continuing to increase the number of personnel involved and are asking for the public's help. Cavalcante was convicted of first-degree murder in the killing of his former girlfriend in 2021. 
A group of protesters in Atlanta are facing charges under the same Georgia racketeering law that's being used to prosecute former President Trump and 18 others in Fulton County. Those protesters are opposed to a new police facility, which they call Cop City. 61 members of a group called Defend the Atlanta Forest are accused of plotting to halt the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. The $90 million facility is set to train police and firefighters. The defendants were charged with violating Georgia's RICO law, the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. The Defend the Atlanta Forest is accused of coordinated acts of violence, intimidation and vandalism. A part of the indictment notes that the group has attracted many out-of-state violent anarchists. The protesters and other critics have expressed environmental concerns over the training site and say it could lead to greater militarization of police. For a closer look at the Georgia RICO Act and its applications, we spoke with Jason Johnson, the president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Jason Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Jason, it seems the RICO Act often conjures up images of mob bosses, the mafia, but in terms of these 61 activists who are trying to stop a police and firefighting training facility in Atlanta, how is it being used here? It's actually a really, uh, in my view, it's a really smart use of the RICO Act because all, all you really need is to have a conspiracy among multiple actors who are engaging um, in acts, in this case, relating to destroying property, threatening people, and even causing uh, acts of violence against others uh, relating to this Cop City project, which is uh, has ironies of its own because these activists claim to want well-trained uh, police officers and public safety officers, and yet they've done everything possible to try to interrupt uh, building a training facility that brings the hope of, of better training for law enforcement officers. And Jason, you mentioned how you think this is a smart use of it, but is there a precedent for using the RICO Act in terms of activists like this? No, not that I'm aware of, but I mean, these, these are activists in name, but um, activism, lawful activism doesn't involve destroying property and threatening people. So those are acts of violence and intimidation. Those aren't associated with lawful protest activity. Those aren't protected. Those aren't First Amendment protected activities. Those are criminal activities. And the RICO statute is designed to address conspiracies involving criminal activities. So I, that's why I think it's a good use of the statute. And Jason, most of these defendants have already been charged. The RICO charges in addition to that and carries a potential heavily, heavier sentence. Why do you think prosecutors are adding the RICO charge? Well, I think it's to address the fact that you have large groups of people who are colluding um, to engage, again, engage in, in, in mass criminal activity that's interfered with, uh, with an important state project. Um, I, I just think that uh, you can't allow that to stand. And the reason that um, it's added, of course, is to enhance the sentencing. You know, an individual act of a destruction of property is considered a very minor offense that in today's justice system is basically ignored. And there's no uh, it's not addressed. There's no accountability for it. But when you bring sta even state-level RICO charges, it brings with it enhanced penalties and additional accountability. It's being prosecuted by the state attorney general's office versus the DeKalb County Prosecutor's Office, which is controlled by a George Soros-funded uh, prosecutor. 
And so in order to get any real accountability, you need to have this prosecution, again, by a state attorney general who is serious about promoting public safety. And, uh, and I think it'll be effective. And expanding on your point, the Georgia Attorney General is calling these defendants military anarchists, and it seems other states have grappled with similar cases, especially with, say, Antifa. Could Georgia actually be setting a precedent in how to deal with groups like this? Certainly it's possible. Not, not every state is serious about dealing with groups like this. Uh, Georgia is. Not every state has a RICO statute. Georgia does. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, not every state will follow suit. I'm certain that most states will continue to foster uh, these groups and allow them to continue to interrupt with commerce and interrupt you know, important state projects like this. But it'll be interesting to see the outcome, and I think it'll be a good one. And why do you think those states will continue to allow them? Well, you know, there's there there are political differences in how the how uh, people at various ends of the political spectrum deal with uh, anarchists, and we saw that starting in 2020 with uh, chaos that descended upon the cities and and what were supposed to be lawful protests after the death of George Floyd, and um, instead of lawful protests, we saw rioting, destruction of property, arson, acts of violence. And the way that those were addressed across various jurisdictions seemed to correspond with the political leanings of those who were in leadership. And so there are uh, some cities are very uh, really sort of invite the activist culture um, and are you know welcome uh, groups like Antifa to to be present and foster them in their jurisdictions. And other jurisdictions um, are more law and order oriented and don't want uh, anarchists to control the streets. And so I think at least at a statewide level in Georgia, we've seen the latter. Jason Johnson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. A three-year-old boy being raised as non-binary by his mother. The father of that child is now fighting for full custody and speaking out about the issue of parental rights. NTD's David Lamb has the story. Harrison Tinsley, a single father at age 31, has always wanted to be a dad, but is now fighting for his son. He is one of many parents voicing their concerns about the issue of parental rights versus state control. And at this point, I've been going to the Capitol and just doing everything I can to fight for kids and protecting them. Two bills in the legislature could change child custody and visitation rights based on a parent's affirmation of a child's gender identity or gender expression. Tinsley shares with NTD his thoughts on parental rights and different gender ideology. I see that they keep putting it in schools and everything. I don't think it's appropriate for kids, especially at such young ages. And California is even going as far as trying to pass legislation to you have to affirm a kid's fake gender identity or you could potentially lose custody. I think that's really dangerous. I think it has no place for in kids' ideas in schools. They should be learning normal history and math and English and not about gender ideology. He speaks from experience. According to Tinsley, his son's mother was trying to raise their three-year-old son Sawyer as non-binary and in girl clothing. And due to differing political viewpoints, Tinsley said he was kept away from seeing his son until he was 15 months old. He's trying to gain full custody of his child. You have to feed your kids or you, you lose them, you go to jail. You can't beat your kids, you lose them, you go to jail. So you have to shelter them, everything. So we already all agree upon 
there is some standards we have to follow to protect children. And I do think that protecting them from this should be included in that. Tinsley disagrees with letting children decide their gender. I think there's only boys and girls. And my son Sawyer adamantly says he's a boy if you ask him. He loves being a boy, he wants to be a boy, he'll tell you he's a boy. If you say anything contrary or give him a girly toy, he'll yell and scream at you, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. And the values he thinks makes a good parent. You have to lead by example. You have to, you have to know when to push them to be brave. You have to know when they just need to have someone to listen to them or to love them when they're sad. He's been sharing his story with the public and media to let people know. I think that everybody at home, you need to speak up. You need to tell the truth. You have to have the courage to say what you actually believe. If we all just do that, we can end these things that are harming children. We can have the world we want. We can create the future we want for our children. Tinsley moved from Tahoe to Los Gatos in order to be closer to his son, saying he won't stop fighting for Sawyer. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, cars are collecting your data. Most major car manufacturers admit they may be selling your personal information. The NFL season is just a day away, but are the defending champs ready? Kansas City may be without two of their best players as the season kicks off. And glowing blue waves dazzle beachgoers in Southern California. A videographer shares more on this unique natural phenomenon when we come back. Welcome back. Cars are failing data privacy standards. A new study says that most major manufacturers admit they may be selling your personal information. We spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma for more details. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, always a pleasure, Tiffany. So, Don, how are cars collecting data? Well, you know, cars nowadays have a ton of sensors in them. Uh, that, that's things like GPS and telematic systems that can monitor driver behavior, uh, vehicle diagnostic abilities that can monitor your engine, fuel consumption, uh, tire pressure, battery status. And, and cars now have microphones installed in them uh, and they have cameras facing inward and outward. But, you know, despite being there being a ton of sensors, it seems like drivers are given little or no control over the personal data their vehicles are collecting. And the study is from researchers for the nonprofit Mozilla Foundation, and it reviewed 25 car brands. And you know, we can talk about how the brands scored in terms of privacy if you want. I mean, that sounds fun. So how did these 25 different brands score? Well, uh, Tiff, not so good because Apparently, the, the car scored the worst uh, for privacy among uh, more than a dozen product categories. That's uh, including uh, things like fitness trackers, health apps, smart speakers, and other connected home appliances. Not a single one of the 25 car brands whose privacy notices were reviewed met the min minimum privacy st standards of Mozilla. And um, 
Mozilla's minimum standards include uh, encrypting all personal information on a car. And the researchers uh, said most car brands actually ignored their emailed questions on the matter. And those that did respond offered partial or unsatisfactory responses. Um, it seems like unless a car buyer now opts for a used pre-digital model, uh, they just don't have a lot of options right now, Tiffany. And so when it comes to privacy, who are these manufacturers sharing that data with? Um, so according to the study, 19 automakers out of 25 say uh, they can sell your personal data. And half of them will share your information with government or law enforcement uh, in response to any requests. So in other words, what that means is uh, law enforcement will actually not need a court order to get your data. And uh, besides that, a technology and human rights fellow at Harvard's Carr Center for Human Rights Policy said uh, he made a parallel saying that most cars are like wiretaps on wheels. Tiffany, think about that. Um, the electronics that drivers pay now more and more money to install are collecting more and more data on them and, and their passengers. Some concerning finds right there, Don Ma. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Tiffany. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at tomorrow's NFL kickoff. That's right, Tiff. The start of the NFL season is just a day away as the Super Bowl champion Chiefs host the Lions. But Kansas City has a couple of major question marks heading into the game regarding the availability of two of their top players. And we're not talking about Patrick Mahomes here, but defensive tackle Chris Jones, who was an all-pro selection last season, has yet to report to the team while in a contract stalemate. The four-time Pro Bowler spoke to reporters yesterday and said if a deal gets done, though, he could play tomorrow night. Meanwhile, tight end Travis Kelsey, a four-time All-Pro selection, hyperextended his knee in practice yesterday, though the team believes he didn't suffer any ligament damage. His status is questionable. And at the U.S. Open today, second-seeded Arena Sabalenka advanced to the semifinals with a straight sets win. She'll face the winner of tonight's Marketa Vondrasova Madison Keys match. Keys, the 28-year-old American, has dropped just one set through four matches thus far. Now on the men's side, Andrei Rublev plays this afternoon against third-seeded Daniel Medvedev, who won this event two years ago. The winner will face the winner of tonight's Carlos Alcaraz versus Alexander Zverev match in the semifinals. Now the German Zverev, who finished runner-up here three years ago, made headlines Monday night when he had a fan ejected for singing the country's former national anthem under Adolf Hitler. Zverev, though, shook off the incident to beat Yannick Sinner in a nearly five-hour marathon match that ended early Tuesday morning. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, just nine baseball games on. But that includes a pivotal matchup in the AL West as the first place Houston Astros play at the slumping third place Texas Rangers with just two games separating the top three teams. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, all yours. And movie magic or a natural wonder and almost special effects like display glowing blue waves recently decorated a number of Southern California coastlines, mesmerizing beachgoers for about a week. NDD's Jason Blair spoke with a videographer who was lucky enough to capture the unique phenomenon. 
Glowing bioluminescent water along the coast of California recently dazzled visitors in a few areas along the southern coast. We were really fortunate to find this pool of water that was stationary for a while and it had tons of bioluminescence in there. So anytime you touch the water, it just glowed like crazy. Patrick Coyne has been capturing the elusive phenomena for the past few years. It's very random when it does happen and there's really no way to predict it. The only way that we really know that it potentially might happen is if we see a red tide during the day. Bioluminescence is caused by dinoflagellate algae, which during the day turns the ocean red, but at night glows blue when ruffled up. In some areas like Florida, it's more predictable to find, but due to various factors like tides and winds in California, it's a rare treat. Oh! <laughs> and nine times out of 10, it leads to nothing, but obviously it's that one time that makes it count. In 2020, there was a super bloom and Coin with some friends spotted some dolphins swimming with the bioluminescence. And obviously I'd never seen dolphins swimming in bioluminescence before, which was just one of the craziest, craziest experiences I've ever personally had. Coin says finding and capturing the natural wonder is something he'll never get tired of. He loves the chase, experiencing it, and being able to share his footage. Jason Blair, Entity News, California. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.